You're listening to the Limitless the Podcast between. This is Jason Jose this week. Kate Ledegar will be talking to Anne Diamond. It's working for me. What I respect, you just can't see. And I uh, was also very interested in the article that you sent this morning about McGill and yeah. So, and it, you, the reason that I'm have been recently made aware of that is looking into Kevin Annan that, that, you know, yeah. And, um, and then also having the experience of when I posted because I was doing the kind of fruitless exercise of posting um, posting uh, things on Facebook that people immediately tear down because they're just too much. And I've since kind of stopped that. But when I was posting... Oh, yeah, I saw your page, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was posting things about Kevin Annett, um, he, it, I was immediately met with uh, well, you know, that's, he's, he's not indigenous and he can't, he can't speak to that. And there are all these indigenous people who, you know, who think he's outrageous and, you know, it was just tear down, tear down. And what, what I think probably, I mean, Kevin, Kevin Annett been saying what is now coming out in the major news papers and channels but he's been saying much more. He's been going much further with it. And that has, that's been um, completely preposterous to people. And people just want to, <clears throat> what they do to everything that's too far, they just want to push it away. But that article that you sent, I was very interested in the paragraph about um, McGill and the MK Ultra pro- program. And um, doctor, what is the doctor's name? Doctor... Cameron. Cameron. Just, and then I'm assuming the Montreal Gazette is kind of the paper of record for Montreal, is it? I mean, is that a major newspaper? Yeah. So, complete it, piece of trash. Yeah. But it's a major paper. It's considered, sure. it's considered truth and, you know, common knowledge, things that they are going to talk about are, no, not necessarily. Yes. It is. You're yeah. absolutely right, but it's so it's so depressing but that it's still that in that state. You know, I could go on on that topic. I'm just curious, but where are you sitting? Are, what city are you in? I forget. I, I'm in Maine. I'm in Maine in the United States. Oh, okay. So yeah. not in a, not in a city. I'm in rural Maine. The closest okay. city to me is Portland, Maine. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. I've been there, but it was many years ago. Okay, I'm just curious because it, get, it always geography always gives a you know, yeah, an insight into people. A context, yeah, you know, not not yeah, a little bit of context anyway, some idea of where you're coming from. I've but, been okay in the northeast for uh, for many for my whole life. Um, yeah. Okay. So, neighbors. I'm in Greece though, <laughs> right now. Yeah. But, yeah. And I anyway, been to Greece, and it's. Uh, to come someday but so the what surprised me was reading everything just laid out there cia 
MK Ultra program, medical experiments, etc. That I, I thought, you know, if I started just talking about this at a cocktail party, people would think that I was a nutcase, you know. But this is real, normal newspaper news. But I think even people, even when they come to that, it's too much, you know. This sounds like science fiction, MK Ultra. And probably purposefully so, the name itself sounds like science fiction. For sure. It is meant probably meant that way, although you know, it dates back to to the war, but the name, I mean, I don't know where they they say it's it's actually MK mind control, you know, German even German based, but I think it's from um uh, uh, RCF uh, RAF um, program, you know, it's a British thing, but um you just raised it off a lot of, I need to straighten out a couple of things there before, if we want to get into that. Um, that story today that I sent just happened to come out this morning. This has been 70 years in the making. I mean, this is, this, what happened today and the fact because it got into the Gazette, which completely surprised me. People, by the way, are texting me kind of furiously because there's a lot, I'm involved quite a lot in this. There's a lawsuit I've been involved in. I'm an MK, MK Ultra survivor. I've written a book about it uh, I, as a child. And But what happened today with these two Mohawk women, now I met them on the day before I left Montreal. In, on September 2nd, I had an unexpected meeting with Continental Horn and the other lady whose name, you know, I can't remember right now, but who they're cousins and Continetta is just this figure, you know, I nearly fainted. I was called to a meeting under the statue of John A. McDonald that has been torn down in the center of Montreal. It's been torn down by the cancel, the people that want to cancel everything, you know, and, and I was, so I was sitting in a park underneath this empty, you know, a parapet kind of where the the statue once stood and then these I saw these three people approaching I had been called to a meeting with I knew it was two Mohawk women and the first one walked up to me and there was a man with them anyway so she used to be a, a, a media star in about 1967 when I was a teenager I used to see her on TV and she was this beautiful young woman well now she's an 80 year old I don't know what to call her, goddess. I mean, there's just something about her. I met those two women. That's that's about, that's the, the substance. That's the gist of it. And they were ready at that point. They, oh yeah, the story that they, they, they had stories about missing children and they wanted proof. And I had done some writing. So they'd heard that I'd written a book or I'd written something. I've never been able to publish. I've self-published the book, but you know, it's been suppressed all this for, for years. So what you're seeing in the Gazette today is I didn't expect it. It's unprecedented hmm. that they're acknowledging, you know, with a photo, with a, with this, I don't know if it's on the front page, but it's a big story. And, um, you know, they, they've never, uh, the Gazette has covered this story up for 70 years and they've done, you know, token gestures they limited hangouts you know of the actual you know enormity of the mk ultra program in montreal but now they can't ignore the native people anymore so that's what's happened this is just a kind of a critical 
mass situation and it's just exploded. And I, I'm, I think everyone's a bit stunned <laughs> that it happened today. <laughs> That's, you know, the Gazette is not a reliable newspaper. It's totally pharma owned. Mm. It's a completely yeah, a propaganda mouthpiece for, you know, the elite. Yeah, and so when you have a story like this coming through there, you have to probably imagine that it's a lot bigger than what they're reporting if it's come to the point where that they're reporting it. Well, you know, you if you if you Google and you begin to look into McGill, if you Google McGill, MK Ultra, Dr. Cameron, you know, you'll see there's Wikipedia Wikipedia pages, lots of them on it. There's lo- there's many films and videos that have come out exposing it and and Montreal is almost always mentioned because it was the worst case of the largest number of victims and the most uh, you know they went farther than they went in any other place it's considered the worst you know and yet I mean it's it's just really been hidden as much as possible and now well they can't hide these bodies I mean, if they do the groundbreaking, the ground uh, penetrating radar, you know, I think they will come up with some evidence. But all the, it's the coming together of all these different groups because it's not only natives and Mohawks; it's children like me, uh, children of the military, people I grew up with, um, who were in this program at McGill as children. And it's it's an it's a totally no go. I tried to publish the book. I was told about my own personal history, I was told this book can never be published in Canada. It's because there's a policy of complete suppression of information about experiments, in particular on children. Hmm. You can't talk about it. It's just too horrible and heinous, you know, and they won't. So my publisher, you know, I I won't go into it. When I tried, I wrote a book. I gave it to my publisher. I was very quiet about, you know, very nice about it. And they basically treated me like they you know, like I was a terrorist, bomb throwing, you know, lunatic. And yeah. I, they cut me off every channel, every possibility of, you know, wow. and, um, and so it was, so that's the situation in Montreal, a complete lockdown on this story. And then today in the Gazette. And then this, it's, and uh, then this. it's very strange. I, when I was listening to your early, I think your earliest four-part interview with Jason. Um, you had brought up the idea of uh, Dr. Mengele having made an appearance of McGill. And it, it, um, it rang a bell with me. And I think it was Kevin Annett who had also uh, probably an article about him where he was giving some sort of uh, evidence maybe of... Mengele being involved it was just you know there was something that was um I'm, oh, yeah. I'm not sure if that if that's where it came from but you know because it's just when you go into certain territory that just seems beyond the pale to what most people are willing to accept as being our shared history um you know it just it's uh it, as you say it's no-go territory and you're the the uh, bomb throwing lunatic in the room and they want to get as far away from you as possible. And so are we moving closer to the territory where some of these things are going to become accepted as truth and common, common knowledge? 
I mean, that's because I think that it, it all, that something that I've been coming up to repeatedly when I think about and talk about uh, controversial subjects are is the the realm of what we consider to be um, what people what people will believe what they will consider as being possibilities and you know so you can be the crazy uncle right considered the crazy uncle and you can consider all sorts of things but the family will treat you as the crazy uncle right and you're you're that you're that role you've got your tinfoil hat on and okay we'll listen to him and he's kind of amusing but that's his territory and so the difference is what is accepted as what will people consider could be true and this gets directly into that realm when that appears especially when that appears in a major regular newspaper well yeah i think a lot of people are sh- will be shaken up by this but you know i mean it's not as though there hasn't been anything uh there's a new what's happened is i believe that in my generation uh i'm 70 now right so there were gatekeepers um throughout my life i didn't i knew some of them and they were my friends some of them and including my publishers and editors and people that i knew who were in the media and i sort of knew those people i was part of it but i i didn't I, it was only when i wrote that book that I realized they're not here to further information. They're here to block it and kill, you know, why are they um, doing that? Why they've been, I think I, you know, it's hard because they stopped talking to me. I would have liked to ask them, but they wouldn't answer if, if I were to say, uh, why do you do this? I mean, but I could see that they were actually installed in those positions became clear to me as I knew these people and I'd reviewed their past and so on, what I knew of their and what they'd done. And so on, I realized, and the fact that they never left the positions they were in, they, most positions were solidly, you know, in, they were in place for their whole lifetime. That means they were vetted mm-hmm. and put in those positions in order and probably, and the fact that they, for me, the other telling detail was they recognized my story without reading it. They rejected my book too quickly to have even read it. They just recognized it was about a taboo banned topic and they told me that. But well they 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 tried to soften it. They didn't want to inflame me, you know, and get me <laughs> inform me too much about what was really going. But that's what it was. It was much too fast. You know, you think they would have asked, like, oh uh and did this really happen to you? And can you tell me more? And well please let's get together and have a call. That would have been normal procedure in the past, but this was like you're out of here. We, we, we don't want to hear from you. And no, and here's your manuscript back, you know, and this cannot be published. It, it was just a, a chorus of, of uh, rejection that didn't have a base, except that it had to have been a policy that they were enacting. So that told me, and then I looked at their careers. Sometimes I'd check these people, you know, I always check people out when I want to try to understand them. And I realized, no, they were they were put in those positions. Where did they come from? I even see some of them. You know, I even now see a Jeffrey Epstein. Anyway, you know, some of them 
had to have known the people around Jeffrey Epstein back in the 70s and 80s because he was in Montreal. You know, he started out in Montreal and in child yeah. trafficking. Yeah, you know, so it's like a, I realized those people in the art scene and this kind of, you know, loose kind of what avant-garde kind of cocaine scene, you know, that was happening in the early 70s. I realized they had Epstein had was on the was on the fringes of that. He was really in New York, but you know, he would come to Montreal because Montreal was open. So and you could get away with stuff. So so this is a you know so I, so the, oh I'm maybe veering off, but I, you know there's like there's layers and layers, and there's money, the entertainment business, the publishing business. It's also totally controlled, and you can start to you know within two everybody's like a degree of separation from the Bronfman family when they're involved in media. The Bronfmans are completely at the center of this organized crime, traffic, human trafficking, drugs, prostitution, et cetera, et cetera. That was their business. So that's how, that's when, with Montreal being at the core, if you make Montreal a kind of a, a, a hub of this whole thing, then you can see there's a whole, there's layers and layers of, you know, there's circles of hell, there's organized crime, and, and then there's the media and law, uh, legal, you know, whatever law firms and, and the in universities and so on feeding off of it and they're like the pillars of society so that's one reason why we don't hear much and hear enough about all this because it, the the whole culture of crime has been formalized into the structure of uh civilization perhaps yeah in our era and maybe forever yeah. and so i i think yeah. that this is one thing that also my thoughts come back to often is the idea of the other and the bad other so jeffrey epstein can be a bad other okay he's bad but he's an other and he's an aberration that would that would be the media cultural context that's been created around him right so that's he's not common he's a he's an exception that is the that I think is what we are uh, encouraged to believe, and so, so too with the mass graves of indigenous people. Well, that was in the past when we weren't so civilized, and we did those things. Yes, well, World War II, you had Nazis and you had people doing those bad things, but that was back then, and we're past that now, and so. My, my thought with this and with the graves and everything is we're not past this at all. We are in this. This is us now. Jeffrey Epstein perhaps is not an aberration, but merely just the turd that happened to float to the top, you know, and what lurks below, we're just not perhaps not seeing under the lily pads or who knows what it's this is the difference i think people who are just determined to believe that life and culture and society is composed primarily of civilized people doing civilized things well. and and they will dismiss and push away any evidence to the contrary by making it seem like that is an exception. And so I think that 
what you talk about in, you know, I like to swing this over to Leonard Cohen as well. Yes, the natural it's <laughs> progression. Well, it is. You have icons and heroes and the the idea that someone and so you know here's the difficult territory for me someone who creates beauty and is an artist and has created things that are personally yeah you that as you've discussed with jason or jason has had that we take certain individuals will take these things take songs and such and we'll make them part of our identity that that can be um that could have been intentionally done as uh, a way to um, exert some kind of control or misdirection. So, so I'd like to know in the context of what we're talking about with the mass graves, you know, how, and Montreal, how does this relate to Leonard Cohen? Well, it, it really does in a very, you know, uh, profound sort of way, because if you're not familiar with some of the, it, I, anyway, it's a, it's a Montreal, it's partly a Montreal thing. It's, it's, it's a global thing too. You know, it's become a, I mean, the, the story of what happened there has not, is now an international, it's international news. It became news internationally before it was even known about locally. So the story of the MK Ultra experiments, but okay, if, fact number one, that, you know, the basic thing is that when Leonard was nine, eight or nine years old, he was, well, this isn't written down anywhere, but it seems pretty obvious to me that he was put in the, that program at McGill. It was 1942. And just as the, just as the Allen Memorial opened in that same year, his military family who are also connected to the Jewish mafia, who are also connected to, uh, you know, senators, you know, major law firms and the Bronfman family who were, one of the Bronfmans was going to, was, was nominated to be the chancellor of McGill that year. And so this whole circle, it's all about, you know, what goes on behind the facade of, of civilized society. So Leonard, as a, as a nine-year-old, I think he wrote a song, you know, the story of Isaac, I, the door had opened slowly, my father came in, I was nine years old, I don't know if you know that, but that's the story of Isaac, you might want to play it, but you know, it's, and uh, he stood so high, so high above me, uh, blah, 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 his, his axe was made of gold, I can't remember that, you know, but basically it's about being sacrificed as a child, it's about a, the child, Isaac, being, facing the father who's about to sacrifice him, and so he goes on to say, you know, you who, I know you who build the, I forget, I, have to, I haven't thought of that song in a while, but um, you know, you who build the altars and sacrifice the children, you must not do it anymore. Now, this was a song, this came out, I think in 67, 68, 69. It was the, maybe the second album, Songs from a Room. And, you know, so that's early Leonard Cohen. He took, you see the thing about, to say that Leonard was involved, Leonard was deeply involved, I think on many, what was his true intention? I think his intention was to be the Messiah and save the world. And his intention was, you know, fuck them if they can't take a joke and uh, it's all about me. He was both. 
things. He wanted to be the Messiah, but if people weren't going to take him seriously, well, you know, he was going to join the other side. You know, I changed my style. What is that? I changed my style to silver. I changed my clothes to black. You know, I, I got, I got tired of trying to be the good guy and tell everybody the truth, which he was doing when he was young. He was writing novels and trying to tell people that horror, that native children were being murdered in Montreal hospitals. That's in his books. If you sit down and read everything. And I've also been in, to Toronto to the library where they have the, some of the unpublished stuff. And there's even more dark stuff in there that you never see the light of day. But, you know, he, he, I would say Leonard began by trying to be a whistleblower and a truth teller. And he, he was naive thinking he could. And then at some point, you know, he was offered money, he was offered money by the CIA, he became CIA operative. He would do, he was a guy that would do anything that, you know, he'd think about it and say, is this that, you know, is there some advantage in this? And then he'd do it. And is there an advantage in going to the dark side and learning about the dark side and doing bad things? Yeah, there's an, you learn. So therefore I'll do it. And I think that you have to think of Leonard as being huge, you know, and 360 degrees of, of you know, uh, shading. There's just so much to him. There's a whole palette of. So I think that's how I think of him now. I mean, it doesn't exonerate him. I I think he was many things, and so I, I don't know what to say about him except I lived next door to him. I think I knew him as a child, at McGill. I was in the program. I think he saved my life. This is these are things I, I think that I believe that actually happened. They're just I, I have no control over it. It's just facts, you know. It's just strange. That's the reason. And as strange, you know, uncontrollable events that are your life, you have no control. You don't think these things into existence. They just happen to you. And that was then the reason why later in my twenties he phoned me up one night. He just phoned me out of the blue and said, come on over. I mean, people don't believe people who chase after celebrities and try to make relations with pop stars and so on. And then, you know, I think it's so difficult. They just, they don't believe that. Why would Leonard Cohen call you? You know, I wasn't even trying to meet him. But because the whole background and, you know, he knew the Mohawks because he was in, you know, he was there with them. He he wrote a whole book about a Mohawk princess, you know, Kathari Kekakwitha, you know, Lily of the Mohawks. And it's a whole novel, Beautiful Losers. It's about McGill, Montreal, the native people. He was totally knowledgeable, you know. And he read the Jesuit relations, the whole, you read the whole, you know, he, he you know, he, he did deep research, just like Kevin Annett. I think at one point, you know, you wanted to be a, mo a novelist and then there's just no money in it. And there's no, uh, not even any real recognition. So he, yeah, he went into music <laughs> and they used to say he sold out. <laughs> well, you know, he did so, but.
at with this is if Leonard Cohen started out really with a 360 degree perspective and really digging into things and with some talent or ability whether he would have been um, identified by people with an interest in controlling such a person. So, oh. so they could be 
either managed or um, directed to work in the service of other uh, people's other goals. That's what happens. You know, you show yourself as a, a shining light and some, you know, and you attract followers and then you have people that believe in you as, you know, you're a messiah to them. And then the other side hears about you and they think, you know, what's, what's his price, you know, and they find, and they find a, a price that he'll accept. He scored high on sociopathy tests and he could also be the sweetest, kindest, sweetest, gentlest, you know. You could be all those things and so sensitive, great artist. You can be all those things if you are determined to be as he clearly was. He was made that way, you know, born that way, raised to think of himself as, you know, some kind of major figure from early on. Well, and then there's also the, the matter of who gets to gets to become famous and why that would have been Leonard Cohen. And I, the people here, at least among the people that I know who listen to Leonard Cohen are the academics, the artists, the musicians, you know, they're, they're the, the bookie people. They're the people who are writing things themselves and yeah, it's a, influencers potentially or at least people who are among uh, what would offensively be referred to as the thinking class you know this would be these would be leonard cohen listeners in my uh in my experience um and this that gives you know it's similar to tom tom waits who Jason also takes uh, tears apart. Thanks a lot, Jason. Um, similar, uh, similar scenario in terms of um, who who's being inspired, who who's taking on Leonard Cohen as part of their identity. These are people who are more likely to be people who, who become influencers themselves. Right. And, you know, they take him by, you know, spoonfuls or whatever, or they take a lot. They're, they're much smarter people than me writing about him. And, you know, there's a lot to explore there. There's, you know, there's many reasons to, to be <laughs> interested in Leonard Cohen and to love Leonard Cohen. There's many, many reasons. But um, um, living, well, like I say, it's, but it's hard to live next door to him. But because there's a lot more than... I mean, there, there was very little evidence around his physical, you know, in, in Montreal, but I, maybe that was even true in LA, you know, he didn't choose to live among the elite. Essentially he's living in a, you know, in, in a neighborhood in Montreal that was known for drugs and prostitution and, you know, it was a kind of crime area at one point and then kind of gentrified and, you know, but, but he was there before it gentrified and, and um, it was a, human you know anyway it, it, what do you call it the main you know it was called <laughs> it was not a a nice place but a lot of people chose to live there who were artists and it was around the period over you know, the stones when they exile on main street you know that had, early 70s well that kind of you know also inspired a lot of people of that in those circles 
but they weren't nice. They weren't, you wouldn't call them nice people. They were artists, they were people on the make. You know, that, that was the kind of circle that he was part of. He didn't, as far as I know, have much to do with academia. After he left, when he was in his 20s, he walked away from that. But maybe at one point, you know, they, he could have become a professor, I guess, at McGill. He had the contacts and the smart, you know, the brains and sort of the, the ability. But he flunked out of them. Um, he flunked out of uh, Columbia. He didn't do very well. You know, he, he, he was, um, you know, he had many sides, but he had an emotional side. He had a, a side that was depressive, you know, and all that. He had many things motivating and he had the money. He had the mother pushing him to become, to be, to be rich, not necessarily famous, but rich, you know, and to, he had all those kinds of, a lot of pressure on him from every direction. So, you know, I think people in academia can can be quite naive too. They can be quite narrow in their. It depends, but it, narrow in their view of things, and they would see the published text. But you know, then there was the whole. I mean, I just happened to be part of that world where Leonard was a figure. He'd come in and out. He'd, you know, he'd appear in his little Volkswagen and try to get you to get into the front seat. You know, in the in nineteen. 70 early 70s you know he was and people said don't go near that guy you know he's bad he's bad news you know he's not someone you want to and um and I listened to them to them and uh you know there there were things for I mean he owned a, a bar you know in Montreal called Night Magic and sounds very pretty and so on but it was a heroin dealing bar I mean maybe he had nothing to do with that side of the business so you see that so academics, a lot of people don't want to hear those kinds of stories. And I don't particularly love those stories. It's just that you, you, you need to factor it in to what motivates someone like him to go as far as he did. And I mean, I don't know what to say about him now. But when I spoke to Jason, I think I was more negative, almost more negative than I am now. And it may that may sound... Let me surprise you, but since he died, I, I've, I feel I've understood a bit more about what, you know, the, the forces that he, what he was up against, kind of what, what made, what formed him when he was too young to really have much say, you know, in the whole thing. It was all about background and gen genetics and, you know, those kind of family power, a lot of powerful people in his family. I was going to ask you, uh, do you feel, because I think that a lot of um, Leonard Cohen's influence comes down to this idea that he was a, um, a, a true, true artist, a genius. What, do you have any thought about that? Um, I think he was and he wasn't, but I think I think he was, I think, I don't know, I guess I'd call him a genius. I think he's a great artist. Um, but on the other hand, I've had periods and, you know, listened to people talk about him for years and also read, you read his poetry. I had really, I don't know how much of his work I've read, but I think I've read more than most people. And because um, it's been over decades. And I don't think he was that great a poet. On the other hand, I've stumbled on things he wrote that, 
that are that are brilliant that I I didn't somehow how do you how do you really judge or encompass it? There's so much there. And then there's you know so so having thought thought of some of his poetry that was very mediocre that was published in the 70s and even the 80s and really I I wasn't a great I wasn't that impressed by a lot of things I saw and a lot of other people who were writing poetry or publishing poetry were not that impressed by him they called what did they call him uh, you know I don't know somewhere I think the British was it was it a Wikipedia entry I saw or something where some British critic you know they called him a late romantic very late you know and that his little rhyming I mean couplets and so on I mean it's just corny I it's like from the backwoods in some ways Montreal you know he McGill I mean I, I but he but he just persevered and he continued and he kept vast like filing cabinets full of notes and he recorded there's way more when you see his I've been to you know, like I said I went to the University of Toronto library and I started going through the boxes I found on you know very kind of disturbing stuff in there and the unpublished first novel and I you know people who haven't seen that stuff mostly I don't know if we'll ever see it really but um then I saw how he he kept journals and he just wrote every he wrote and wrote and wrote and he saved everything you know so who does that I don't I certainly you know I let I don't know I haven't saved you know he had apparently in LA he had a um a, he had lockers full of his writing just that he that it came from the last few years of his life he was a writer but you know a lot of, uh, and a lot of people say well he was kind of not that great a writer well you know hard to say because there's so much I think that there's um people my, you know, maybe myself or me in the past, but people in general look to Leonard Cohen or people like Leonard Cohen as people who hold a key to uh, to answering life's larger questions. And I was thinking about this when I was listening to. Um, Malcolm Gladwell uh, podcast talking about the song Hallelujah and in this he was saying that um, he's talking about the development of it over time and how when it first came out he said it really hadn't achieved its highest level but over time you know John Cale then took it and transformed it and then it's, it went uh -huh. There I and, saw that yeah. uh -huh. and and he was also um, likening that to Cohen himself being a uh, late blooming, a, a kind of a slow motion genius, somebody who develops their genius over time, rather than a someone like Picasso who is just all at once throw it out there and it's genius, genius, genius. This is somebody who develops slowly over time and their genius is in the process of uh, more reworking right so it's um both leonard cohen in his lifetime kind of put things out and everything he put out these raw things 
and he both he himself would rework them. I think he himself reworked Hallelujah over time, and others also reworked that raw material. So his um, particular type of uh, ability is raw and it's a work in progress. And so we can kind of go along the journey with him, perhaps his thought process as something achieves, if there is a pinnacle to achieve of anything, achieves its, its, its level where it becomes, vibrates at that frequency of art or, and I was thinking of it, so Gladwell was saying that he put out the first clip of the first version of Hallelujah from, um, I, for, I forget the album, but it was, I think, 19... Uh, various, various Positions. Various, various Positions. positions. It's 1984. 1984. Yeah, so, and I was thinking, he said, you know, it just sounds, um, it sounds campy over the top. And I said, and I was, the word that came to my mind, well, it sounds like a proclamation. He's singing this as a proclamation. And that over time, what the song became and what many of his songs became, or the feeling that they brought to me, the feeling of revelation. So it starts out with a song as a proclamation. Okay, here's, da, 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 here's how this is. And then it evolves and his other music also. It's like revelation. He is bringing forth some sort of truth in this song that is beyond the kind of hokey backwoodsy clumsy way that he's putting it together it becomes and maybe by virtue of that it becomes something that reveals a deeper yeah. and common truth yeah and well i mean he he was someone with a very strong sense of limitation you know that you know very much like he enclosed songs from a room. He enclosed himself in very in cubes, you know, like empty places. His he was a neat freak, you know. He he um, he um, there was a very strong sense of control, limitation, very Virgo, very you know Saturnian in many ways. You know, you you never see him. <laughs> I don't know. You imagine him throwing a party or you know letting things. Anyway. He, he didn't like chaos, um, yet he'd go to bars every night and, you know, have a circle of people around him and he'd just talk and, there, you, you know, everybody listened and he didn't converse so much as he, you know, orated and declaimed, you know, and, um, but, um, yeah, I think that that's probably what happens when you just, he just didn't give up. He was, and he said to me, I remember years ago, right in the beginning, he said to me, Annie, you know, it's always slow when you're good or something like that. Or when you're good, it's always slow. Meaning, you know, I was saying, oh, I'm trying to write something, Leonard, and I, so slow. He's like, well, it's always slow when you're good. But, um, you know, he, he worked very slowly. And he said he's, he was, do you see that quote? He said, I'm Matisse, and, but Dylan was Picasso is Picasso. I I am Matisse. So he actually he said that too. He fit. He felt yeah. that. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah. I mean, he didn't. You know, he came across. You know, someone with incredible. I used to feel just there's this pressure on him. There was something about him. You'd be in a room with him, and it was like being in a some kind of tank. You know, compression chamber. 
really there there was a feeling uh, hard to describe you know about him that there's something abnormal but <laughs> but when you think about when i think about his <coughs> early life which he didn't really ever get around to talking about because again i think because it's the kiss of death to say you were in those days anyway to say you were in the mk ultra program and you were in flotation tanks which he told me he had been and that he really loved it, you know, loved being in flotation tanks at McGill. But he was, so he was put through torture and he somehow, in, he used to, I get the feeling he enjoyed it. He, he, he enjoyed the fact that he could overcome impossible, you know, he, he could overcome pain or he could live with pain. He could endure pain. He was, you know, it doesn't seem to me that if you compare him to Bob Dylan, you know, you don't, it, Bob Dylan seems to me like in some ways similar to that and totally focused, but in the other ways, much more joyous and, and, and ready to let loose and, you know, and, and improvise. And you know how the difference between the two of them, whereas Leonard wouldn't release anything without going over it many times, you know, it was all, um, uh, you know, the many, many drafts of Hallelujah. I, I don't know. I heard that song in 1984 because he would invite people over and play their, play his new stuff for them. And, so I was one of the people that got to hear that album, and that was the song that stood out for me on that album. But I think I haven't listened to it in a long time. That version, you know. Now I'm sick of it. Of Everybody's sick of it. <laughs> anyway, but sorry. <laughs> but I don't know. Was he a genius? Yeah, I think he was a genius. He was. He was definitely, you know, determined to have an impact, and he's had pretty huge impact and probably will continue to have. But perhaps you'd guess that that impact was aided by other. Well, I think he enjoyed living in two worlds. He enjoyed, he fed one world fed the other. So, you know, he was on the, in the monastery on Mount Baldy, but then he'd go down into LA and he'd deal with business and so on. And God knows what else, you know, but I think that, I think that, I think he had a foot in religion and a foot in organized crime. I think he had, you know, he had a foot in everything, in, in a lot of things that were total was opposites. That, was that a Zen monastery? What? Was that a Zen monastery? Yeah, yeah. This is another high. What? Very, very high up, 6,000 feet up in, you know, outside LA where it snows, you know. The door, it opened slowly. My father, he came in. I was nine years old And he stood so tall above me Blue eyes, they were shining And his voice was very cold Said I've had a vision And you know I'm strong and holy I must do I've been told So we started up the mountain I was running He was walking And his axe Was made of gold Well, the trees, they got much smaller The lake, a lady's mirror we stopped to drink some wine Then he threw the bottle over It broke a minute later 
and he put his hand on mine. I thought I saw an eagle, but it might have been a vulture. I never could decide. Then my father built an altar. He looked once behind his shoulder. He knew I would not hide. You who build the altars now to sacrifice these children, you must not do it anymore. A dream is not a vision, and you never have been tempted by a demon or a god. You who stand above them now, your hatchets blunt and bloody, you were not there before. When I lay upon a mountain, my father's hand was trembling with the beauty of the another thing that interests me the connection with with the zen buddhism because um th there's another uh to peter matheson who was um a zen buddhist uh lay monk i, I used to go to, to so, sometimes to his uh uh zendo um he he was also connected with cia through Paris, the Paris Review, and 
that kind of thing. And this is right. this is not this is not. Um, at first, I thought it was just hearing this from can you know people, but this is you can read this as well. I think it's. Um, I've read that. It's out there, and um, you know, but he, I, there seems to be some connection too with hot higher up artists potentially CIA connected uh, was it project mockingbird was that yeah. the was that the one and yeah and, and zen buddhism um and i don't i don't have a particular uh theory about that but i've noticed it i don't know if yeah got well sydney got Sidney Gottlieb would be the he'd be the first maybe when one of the early people he was the head of the MK Ultra chemical division of the MK Ultra he was the poisoner in chief he he's the guy that tried to poison Castro and Lumumba and these politicians of the 60s and so on and he was probably a paperclip Nazi but that's another story that you know that's hard to prove but they, they said he was Jewish from the Bronx but I, I have read that he really wasn't. That was a fake identity that was given to him when he came to America after the war and they and the CIA employed him the way they employed Mengele. And they put him in charge of, in the 50s, of the MKUltra chemical, they called it the chemical division, but it, 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 he was in charge of the children's program of MKUltra. And there's a whole lot, you can read books on him, but he became a Zen Buddhist. And he moved to California when he kind of retired and quit the CIA or when it was exposed. And just before Leonard got into Zen, you know, and the thing is that's a McGill connection. Uh, you know, he, you know, Cameron was taking money from Sidney Gottlieb who was in New York, but or in Washington, I guess, you know, running, working at first with Alan Dulles, of, you know, the head of the CIA and so on. So there's this, there's a very, there's a professional, they were colleagues. Leonard was a kind of, was it would have been like one of the um, kids that they trained and that then became an operative. And, you know, at 70, in 74, Leonard got into Zen with the Roshi. I don't know who the teacher was that Sid Gottlieb hooked up with, or if he did hook up with the teacher, but he moved to California, I think around Glendale. I forget. No, I forget where he, I don't know where he lived. Seems to me, okay, I did Zen practice for a while and I met quite a few people in it who would, were probably damaged, could even have been former children from, of MKUltra. And they couldn't have been steered into that practice because it keeps you from going crazy and it keeps you from talking. They don't, didn't, you know, that just seems like a good place to warehouse your victims, but also maybe, you know, a good place for, I don't know, Leonard was a victim too. So, you know, you go there and you sit in lotus position and for 16 hours a day and, you know, you're not allowed to talk and you do that for a whole week and, you know, come out of there and you feel you've touched, you know, the stars and you've experienced all these things, but um, it's all about silence. And it seems to me that's what they wanted. They, you even get, you know, you even get shouted at if you talk. I mean, they, they don't want to hear about your history. You know, they want you to achieve some kind of enlightenment and, you know, whatever they, 
they don't really talk. The Roshi didn't, Leonard's Roshi was not about enlightenment. He was more about, I don't know, something deeper. But, but, um, but you know, that's a, 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 that would be a perfect place to, for those people to heal. And maybe some of them might be monks for the rest of their lives and never, you know. So Leonard lived on that mountain you know, outside LA, Mount Baldy, and then he would drive down into town and go to his, you know, his studio and so on in his house, and he he lived in between, which was normally not a, you know, he had special status, and was able to do that. But he was, and then people admired him. The monks at Mount Baldy admired him because he was so streetwise. I mean, he was so aware of the dark side, I guess too. He they saw him as this Renaissance person that you know. Who had deep insight because he had he was in both worlds and Zen is very uh, Zen is not about uh, light it's about light and dark I mean it's not it doesn't encourage you're not encouraged to uh, transcend you know so much in Zen you're encouraged to sit with whatever it is that's with you that's on your mind that's bothering that's killing you and you're encouraged to do that right to the limits of what you know to the death even. You know, that's kind of what Zen's about. It's it's not Christian in the sense of you know goodness and light and and they don't um, they don't necessarily honor goodness. If you can be good but very superficial, you know, superficially kind or or not, you know, that somebody with a realization. Talk about realization. So someone like Leonard could be seen as having a deeper form of realization, different deeper deeper realization than someone who's just all goes around doing good deeds their whole life. You know, it's it's a good environment. It, it worked for him but not enough for him to become a Roshi in his own right, which I think at one point he wanted to be. He wanted to be a, you know. Yeah, I think Matheson was a Roshi. I yeah. I don't know who Matheson's teacher was. At one point I knew that world quite well. It was Bernie Glassman, I think, wasn't it? Who was it? I think, or at least he was connected. That's New York or is California? Yeah, Yonkers, I think. Uh, or, or Brooklyn, some, yeah, somewhere, somewhere in New York, somewhere near to New York City. Well, there are different styles, you know, different styles of Zen. And the, the Roshi was one of the particular, uh, I, I gravitated to him and I liked him a lot. Um, it was very little, um, uh, I don't want to say, uh, artificiality about it, you know, artifice and uh, it was very down to earth. Uh, makes me think, Jason, of uh, your your um, Jonathan Lethem's uh, Zen murderous Zen monks are, are there. Did some of the in uh, Motherless Brooklyn that that played a role in uh, in that book? There was something that um, I have a lot of reading to catch up on. <laughs> Well, it just, it seems, it seems, um, it just seems like an interesting, uh, interesting facet of, um, and a common facet that Buddhism is, you know, a, a collecting bucket or something. And I think, you know, as you say, it would serve both 
um, yeah. to be therapeutic and also to keep you quiet. So, yeah, I don't know how. Well, it can be a cult. I mean, it, it really easily does become a cult. And then, there were, you know, then there were the Tibetans, the Tibetan Buddhists, you know, like they're a whole other scene. And I know a little bit about them. I knew some of those people, but, um, you know, they were CIA connected. Chogam Trungpa, if you ever heard of him, who wrote many oh. books, right? Is he yeah. the the artist, Ch Chogam Trungpa, or is he, um, that was the one who did the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, Chogam Trungpa? Um, there was an artist, there was an artist as well, who was kind well, of- Well, I think he was quite accomplished as a, as a painter, you know, as a painter, like he, uh, calligraphy and so on, and I think he has books out maybe of that, but it could be him. Um, Meditation in action and uh, cutting through spiritual materialism. Maybe mm. are the two, mm. and then the others too. Mm -hmm. So he was. Trungpa was very was amazing. A, a very. I mean, he died young because he was a drinker and a womanizer. And um, yeah, that's, that's the artist one that I'm yeah. thinking. Yeah. Yeah. But his apparently his scene was very CIA infiltrated and. Huh. I hadn't. I'd not heard about that. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, the other, and I don't know if this is directly related, but something else that I was looking into recently was um, so thinking about, I think Project Mockingbird also had to do with um, abstract expressionism, I think, in New York City. And I've heard that, yeah. The, and there, there, as it's been explained to me, that was um, a uh, intentional um, intentional operation to shift the art center, you know, arts, art scene or the locus of what was considered the center of visual art of painting from away from Paris, I believe at that time or France and shift it to New York City. And um, and having the New York City abstract expressionist Pollock and um, de Kooning and yeah. uh, and others become have elevate them to um, to these great heights. And at the time, as it was explained to me, I thought just to you know in the U United States interest to make us the big central place of importance, which, you know, could be a goal in itself. But I was, I was been reading uh, a biography of a socialite named um, Bunny Mellon recently, just in the, um, oh yeah. In, in the interest of just kind of say, okay, how does this, how does this work? How does this work when you are in that level? What is your life like? And I, I also grew up in a place um, in, uh, in the Hamptons, around the Hamptons on Long Island, where a lot of these people collect. And um, so it's a, sometimes a bit of a interest of mine. But looking at this, I was struck by, um, they're talking, the author is talking about an auction at the beginning and how <clears throat> she'd spent, she was a incredible spender because her second husband was a, one of the richest men in the United States and um, how there are all these objects that are up for auction. And, but 
among the things that were sold and that made the her um her estate worth a tremendous amount of money rather than having it been frittered away by just buying things that would devalue were a number of paintings that she'd purchased and um i think i'm I'm not sure precisely what, but I think some of them were in the realm of Rothko's and de Kooning's and things like that. And I was looking recently, I looked up the most, um, the most expensive paintings in the, you know, in the world. And the first one is something from the 1400s. Um, I forget, I forget the name of it. Some, I, I believe it's an Italian painting from the 1400s. The second one is a de Kooning. So the first one clocks at 400 and something million, the second de Kooning at 300 and something million. And then beyond that, there are generally impressionist painters and abstract expressionists. So I was thinking paintings are a very strange thing. The only thing that is comparable in terms of objects having that sort of value are is um, houses and pieces of property. And in one case, this crazy yacht made of diamonds. But, you know, I think that's a, kind of an aberration. Um, so not even jewelry is as valuable as these paintings that are now worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And so many of these are abstract expressionist works. Incredible amount of them, Rothko's and de Kooning's as well. And so I'm thinking this is, if you're looking at something that's been created as a, I mean, both symbolically and practically, and even as a, in a sense of magic, creating an object that is, you know, that this is alchemy. This is alchemy that's happening. You're taking you're taking something that somebody has created, painted. In the case of abstract expressionism, you're not even looking at something that is something from the far past that has extreme rarity value that is representative of, you know, maybe a first point of human perceptual visual artistic development. You're looking at something that has been produced fairly recently and in many cases fairly quickly. These, a lot of abstract expressionist works. I don't, I'm not sure if de Kooning was reworked and re, but, but I'm saying these are not, um, I'm not arguing that they might not be valuable objects in terms of art pieces, but they're not finely crafted pieces of artisanship in the same way that some other things are. This is money printing in a way. This is money printing that has been facilitated perhaps by an intentional, um, an intentional operation to make it, to make it money. I I read that about abstract expression or I saw the documentary or I can't remember now it's quite a few years ago but 
I was pretty convinced, you know, that that there was a lot of fakery and that the, that there, yeah, and that you can do and that you can do that if you are the CIA and you have control, you know, the Paris Review and the whole. If you control all the publishing world and then you can control all the critics and you can control the galleries, you can control everything. You know, um, one of the anyway, I don't know. I was going to say one of the people that used to go to Hydra and he still, probably still does is a New York artist called Bryce Marden and he's famous for his you know blank canvases with a single line you know and he he's worth millions but I mean and people and then I'm you know and I remember you know in my in those early days you know I knew people that were they gravitated to those things they just were gravitated you know they wanted to be part of it because well if he can do it why can't I and that's what a lot of people thought of Leonard also back in the day I mean if he can if he can make a million dollars sell a million albums writing you know you know who I am you've stared at the sun well I am the one who's changing from nothing to I could do that but really probably they couldn't and they couldn't be that good could you know but but it seems so simple and then they there so there there were people and I can play guitar so much better than him and I sing so much better and I write beautiful songs you know I knew people like that <laughs> and they just think it's a I I don't know it's just some people just you know they they're they're magnetized by money fame attention all those things it's so Andy Warhol what do you make of him I mean you know he had so many people around him you know I just never, I never developed an interest in those things the way I know that other people worship it. You know, they worship it. I wouldn't worship art, even, you know. I, I was, I was raised, I was raised in the center of that, you know, and, um, you know, my sister-in-law, she, she cleaned de Kooning's house. She said that they used to, and when he was old and, um, had dementia and she said there were people there who would put paint brushes in his hand you know and guide him to <laughs> something to make some more money and with. sign it yeah you know yeah, yeah. Sign it. Yeah. well you yeah. know and in, in terms of de Kooning being a happy elder person you know that's wonderful therapeutic thing but it's also a factory for um for printing money it's it's just strange when when you think of it like this so you know all the people who say you know oh my kid could do that you know or i could do that you know that this is these things are seemingly within reach whether it is the um roughness of a leonard cohen song or whether it's the relative not non-fine finish of an abstract expressionist painting yeah it all seems very much within reach but then the missing um the missing ingredient i don't know is that the cia <laughs> why you can't do that you know why you can't why your work one one's writing does not become elevated you know how many people were never uh you know, so Matheson was a gatekeeper, right? I mean, and so what what was he gatekeeping? And certainly a lot of the people who are let through that gate are wonderful artists, but then it's just the question who's not being let through. And I don't know. And the very fact of the gate in the first place is creating fame because you're 
filtering and picking and choosing. Yeah. So well, this is creation, yeah, the mm -hmm. creation of a can uh, the creation of a canon is very different from creating, you know, producing art because there's so many people producing art and there's so many talented, brilliant people who never heard of them. And, you know, but some people then become involved in the, in the building of a canon. And then they, and they, and they bring together, you know, a different type of ability or talent or whatever, I guess, or, or ambition or a desire to do that, you know, and then they, and they usually, they form groups and then they, and then they battle for supremacy and those, those things go on. And, uh, most of people are just passive spectators of it, you know, and uh, consumers sometimes. And um, I, I don't know who's to say what what that's all about. I mean, the CIA, I, a friend, I haven't read the book. I don't know if it was from a book, but she pointed out that post-war literature, also heavily dominated by, you know, MK Ultra type, the Tavistock Institute and, and the CIA. You know, they were involved in culture. Well, even little old Dr. Cameron in Montreal, they, who lecture shocked people and was, you know, the notorious mind control doctor and so on. He was very involved in culture and he encouraged art. Uh, you know, art is just so plastic and so useful. It's such a way to also look into people and see what their thoughts are and control, even control them. So he, you know, he was involved in that. But, um, they but what they I guess that's what it takes you know in the, in the old days you had queens and princes and so on and they assembled artists and it was probably just as you know they look for talented people they'd find them bring them to the castle you know and and encourage them and patronize them for their you know and then they produce or whatever musicians Beethoven they have patrons but now <laughs> we have you know CIA and the Tavistock Institute whose aim is a step goes a step further I mean Queen Elizabeth they say was into that you know was into artists and astrologers and 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 mind control and um and you know espionage using uh writers and poets and so on and you know john d and all that it's been going on for for centuries and it just happens they they did put together a scene when they put together the you know the counterculture you could say people are always on about how the counterculture is a cia production and so on yes and maybe some of the artists they brought together were kind of mediocre children of the military and maybe they were much better people they could have assembled but they took obedient ones but nevertheless out of that cauldron you know of creativity came something and you can say oh the rolling stones you know were puppets of you know they were but everyone's a puppet i think when they start out and well, then they they live on, you know, they die young or they live and at some point, maybe their work does get elevated and have some meaning because simply for lasting as long as it does, bringing people together the way it does and, develop, you know, acquiring meaning that, you know, our parent, my parents couldn't see any meaning in Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that I liked him when I was 15 because I think I made a good choice, you know. So are you, are you saying that it, if there's this um that the children of the military oh for instance right that'd be like um jim morrison and, yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know who were who were allowed to become famous you know the but laurel canyon they, that whole, you know are, what they're talking are you, yeah. are you saying that they are still a representative sample or that you know they're still a subset of creativity and talent and um 
of their a sample of the time that they came from and so they're still worth something by virtue of that well i think just you know the um Lund yeah the, you just can't deny it they the fact that they achieve the status maybe through uh, questionable connections and and for questionable purposes in the beginning were they just trying to get a generation hooked on drugs you know uh, stop you know become apolitical or whatever they people say about the 60s now but you you still can't get away from it you can't you you can't ignore that it it um exploded and it's it's it, it can't easily be erased i suppose you could you know you could just wipe it out like if you were a russian commissar you know you just eliminate that as or whatever you know you're nazi you'd say that's jewish music or something and it wouldn't exist anymore but but you know in your in your culture but you 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 have to admit that all that energy and all that effort that was put into it and all the belief that it was something you know um i when i was young i tended to be more you know I, maybe i was kind of more critical and i was not a follower of these bands but i definitely absorbed it and heard it and listened sometimes really loved it you know responded but i wasn't never call myself you know embedded in that world but now that i look at it i mean you can't deny that it there's some there's good <laughs> there's good work in there and it made a statement and it defined a it defined a time and a generation i mean i i don't know you know that so you have to give it some credit it it, it existed you know and it lasted doesn't mean that it's it's great maybe it is though maybe some things did achieve great i didn't think leonard cohen was great in the beginning i was sort of embarrassed by i think you know but as and i didn't like his later work particularly but i you have to then you know say well it's this huge production that it's hard to you know judge really and you just were stuck with it it's, there it is now i greet you from the other side of sorrow and
Curious chair if Jason has any thoughts about the music. So many that I started taking notes actually, because, well, oh, well, I'll read the notes because at least then I'll get me talking. The same culture that worshipped Leonard Cohen would cancel him if they knew the truth about him. And the point there that I feel is, is really significant is Cohen helped create this culture that would then cancel him right, if they knew the truth about what he was up to. So there's, there's, that is really deeply significant because uh, that that's how it works. Well, this is my next note. Fragmented souls create fragmented cultures that fragment people. So when Anne's talking about Leonard and she knew him personally, so it's, it's it's an inside view, and I don't have that, but I do have a parasocial relationship with Cohen, you know, that began with loving his music and then continued and evolved through knowing Anne and finding these things out about him, and so my the simplest way for me to understand Leonard Cohen is 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 a Jekyll and Hyde character that he had probably many more than just two sides, but one could simplify it to say that he had two sides. He had, he had a creative artistic side and he had a, a destructive predatorial uh, aggrandizer side you know, that, that he'd identified him with, with elitist agendas. Um, and so that question of the art and the music and is it great and is Cohen a genius and questions like that. Um, I mean, the reason that this, they've been so difficult for me is because I also grew up like Kate in a culture that worshipped art. And so to me, if somebody was a great artist, that meant they were a great soul. And I've, I've had to just read recalibrate over it's taken me decades to recalibrate my understanding that 
and that Anne was touching on this, saying it directly, really, that art is very useful. This is a spiritual war that we're talking about here. It's not socio-political or economic, it's a spiritual war. And in the spiritual war, uh, art is, is the tool of the devil. In fact, in Steinerism, it's, I mean, it, it's just the cliche, the artist at the crossroads, the musician at the crossroads makes a deal with the devil. In Rudolf Steiner's thing, it's Lucifer. Lucifer is the, the force, the quality of the imagination uh, that, well, I mean, it has a positive function, but if it's taken to its limit, then the power of the imagination and the Luciferian temptation is to create a counterfeit of reality, to, to not serve God anymore, but to replace God. So that seems to me that reconciles in a way the two sides of someone like Leonard Cohen, because it's not, it's not about whether he was a genius or how great was the artist, it's, it's about what was it in service of. That, that's to me, uh, that's, that's, that's the only thing that matters. So, so the greater the artist, the more destructive and more harm they can do if they put their service in, to the wrong thing. If they put it in service of the wrong thing, then, then it becomes a destructive force. And it, it doesn't mean the art isn't beautiful, but it means that the effect it's having is... is to lure people away from reality into a dream world and to, and to worship false idols. Yeah, I agree. I, our artists are all uh, building, you know, it's all about idolatry, really. On the other hand, you know, it serves, it, it's educational. It uh, serves a, a psychological purpose. It educates people about their own you know, flaws and mistakes and so on. Art's about the dark side more than it, you know, more than it is about great uh, goodness, you know, about God. It's more about the devil. Uh, Sylvia, you know, I like Sylvia Plath. She said, um, in, in reality, in real life, we're, we're, not, we're drawn to people who are good and who are, you know, shine and who, are light, who give out light and who do good things. And we're, we abhor, uh, evil people but in art it's the complete reverse you don't really want to read a novel about a good person you know just being good you want to read it that's what art does is it and you know so i'm i'm comfortable with <laughs> you know with the fact that art is not about god so much as about you know like you say it's luciferian i'm comfortable because it, I, I feel we need to be educated in that and i remember the roshi saying I felt very strongly he was talking about Leonard. He was talking about a teacher who, you know, was uh, who was like not the highest level of Zen master. And I can't remember who it was, I think Kozan or something. And uh, I thought, felt he was comparing him to Leonard. And he said, but he was, but he was a great master teacher of human duplicity. And the thing is, you, some people at least can learn, need to learn that. They need to learn about duplicity, about evil, about, you know, so i'm just more you know I let these things exist but you know caveat emptor you're on your own um deciding what you're going to what you're going to um take to heart and 
follow and you know build your identity around you that's that's your decision that's you that's not the artist's fault if you you know if you take up black sabbath you know as your god or something and you know commit suicide because you hear them tell you to you know that that's your own that's just your level but um you know i'm simpler well, I, I just wonder if, um, I mean, because you're on the other side of it, like I am. So I also, as I do with John DeRuta, and even to some degree, Alistair Crowley, all these other figures that I've had to bring down to earth, I can see, well, I've learned valuable lessons through through studying them, but more than studying, <laughs> through through connecting to them and being influenced by them. It's allowed me to identify things in myself and come through to the other side. And so, yeah, on the other side, you can say something like, or I can say something like what Anne said, but I wouldn't say it so broadly because many people, I mean, you could say it's some sort of natural selection or spiritual selection. If you're fooled by the packaging, then you deserve what you get. But there is a misbranding going on. Like if you buy products from a corporation and you read the ingredients and they, and it, the ingredients essentially lie they say well no this is just this is just flour and rice and sugar but in actual fact it's got all kinds of to the vaccine would be a, a very topical example right not that anyone gets to read the ingredients but if you're dumb enough to believe what the corporations tell you you're going to get poisoned but there's still the accountability for the corporations who've packaged that delivery device in a, as a way to sabotage your nervous system and your psyche so for me and Anne has said this Cohen is accountable on the one hand and on the other hand it's up to us it's like a razor's edge to really identify the evil without condemning the evil doer uh, yeah. that that is a real balancing act and it's not about giving them carte blanche by just saying well is human and it's to me it's well back to this thing of what what's a fragmented psyche what what is that Jekyll and Hyde myth about because that is a really profound thing to learn it's back to MK Ultra. I mean what what is the fragmentation of the psyche and what would it look like if it was really perfected it would look like Leonard Cohen where you have a great artist and a sensitive soul lover genius and you think it's the whole thing but it isn't it's just a fragment it's just a fragment of a wounded nine-year-old child that was put to the fore and given all the power over you know that lucifer offered to jesus given power over all the kingdoms and it's it's a horror story it's a tragedy so if we don't if we don't see that then we've we've we haven't seen the full picture and we end up living and dying in an illusion like worshiping the false idol and 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 aspiring to that in ourselves you know i'm still trying to extricate myself from that i'm still trying to heal that wounded child fragment in me that wants to be the messiah and if he can't be the messiah he'll be the antichrist i identify with that right. very deeply it has to be healed Worst case scenario in in my mind is mediocrity, where someone or you know, or a happy face, you know, or art that has just you know that doesn't go anywhere, doesn't dig into these contradictions, and just kind of offers you a surface, like I don't know Ed Sheeran, you know, I don't know, 
Is that better? I mean, you know, there's kitsch and then there's, I mean, and you have to include kitsch in everything too, because that's very much, Leonard Cohen, for example, incorporated kitsch into his work because we just swim in it, you know, we swim. And uh, kitsch is the, what is it? Uh, Milan Kundera said, kitsch is the absolute denial of shit. You know, if you live in total denial, of, you know, of the of the dark side of your, you know, then you you create kitsch and velvet paintings on velvet and. Well, that maybe that's know. the culture's revenge on Cohen then that they've turned him into kitsch. Right? By, they are turning him into kitsch, right. no question. They are. They're quickly, right. eh? Aren't they? Yeah, yeah, because they're refusing to see the dark side. They don't want to see the whole Cohen. So they have to believe the image that he created and that would trap him in some trans-temporal realm. No, that's absolutely true. There's a very sick uh, cult around him, I think, of, of I don't know what the, I don't know what motivates people. It's very adolescent, though. And yes, I know because when I've tried to put forward this information about him on some of these websites and so on where people collect and talk about him, I'm instantly shut down. I mean, it's it's... You can't say you can't be critical of him. You have to worship. Yeah, they're making people, they're making people worship him. Um, and that, no, you're absolutely right. I tend to forget that because I don't go there very much. I don't, you know. But he is on the side of a building in Montreal. This giant, you know, image of him with his hand in this Masonic, uh, you know, over his heart in a Masonic gesture of secrecy. People just lap it up. Well, for some reason, only today did I really make the connection that it was my brother who introduced me to Leonard Cohen, which is unusual because, well, I, you know, I generally found my own music. I mean, he introduced me to Talking Heads, but that was when I was 14 or something. This was much later. I was 20. Uh, and and it, But anyway, it just yeah. it, it's become significant today to me because... Well, my brother's dead now, and he loved Leonard Cohen, and he also created a, a you know a cult of celebrity around himself. And uh, he also, like Anne, you're saying about Cohen, well, we didn't dig into this that deeply, but the path of transgression. I, I mean, I feel I understand intimately when you say that you think Cohen was interested in becoming a, a 360 degree person and that it would deepen his connection to reality or his sense of reality if he committed terrible acts. It's a Crowleyanic philosophy. My brother was into it and I've doubt, you know, I've, I've skirted close enough to know that it does feel, that one does feel somehow more, more real if one is responsible for doing terrible things. And it's, well, I don't even know how to, right. you know, really, how I feel about that. But I know that it destroyed my brother. It didn't destroy Cohen. He managed to surf that wave. Um, but I feel as though my brother's, in some sense, present in this conversation. Like there's this kind of pressure in my body, which is unusual, that I interpret intuitively to whatever state he's in now and that there's a kind of trap i mean more than the kind of trap there is this the satanic trap that cohen helped to 
effect for many people, I feel, and my brother Valentin. Jason, you'd mentioned in a previous interview that um, his playing I'm your fan for you, I think in a, the early 90s. I'm your man, like not I'm your fan. because I'm, yeah. I'm your fan was the, um, the thing, but I'm your man. And uh, I'm your man was also my first introduction to Leonard Cohen around the same time my sister older, you know, she's 13 years older than I am said sent it to me for birthday or something like that you know and she's very much in the world of art academia um cultural things you know the kind of person who i see as generally being apt to be um connected to knowledgeable about a fan of leonard cohen and so that was my that was my introduction and remembering um you know listening to that yeah and i was a college student at that time and integrating that into who I was, you know, and this idea of, um, you know, the Tower of Song and being, being banished to this place and, oh, yes, that's me. This is, you know, I'm being worked upon by these forces. And you, I had the experience of, a, you know, just integrating that mythology into how I understood myself and how I understood how the world worked. And it's, I think that is a profound point. I mean, we always integrate things in a personal, we personalize songs, but they become, you know, the songs become influential to how we um, understand ourselves. Right, so Wait, you, oh, I, uh, sorry, Anne, I was just going to say that uh, what came to the image that came to mind was that Kate was lured into the to, to Leonard Cohen's Tower of Song, which is like the Tower of Babel, you know? and that he's, he's luring souls in there for company. Anyway, sorry, carry on, Anne. Oh, I just was going to say, I was trying to remember your first point and uh, that I thought was great that we should have, you know, would really, it, it's just debatable and very interesting about if, if people understood what Leonard, who he really was and what he was really talking about, they would cancel him, which is really true. And it's very sad, but that's true. But I think people would, they want, they're insisting on a, I think that's because they're just insisting on a very one dimensional, you know, uh, notion of what progress, whatever people, you know, the people, the woke people who, who are who are trying to cancel history and so on? Well, you know that's completely the antithesis of what Leonard was about, and that's another reason why another reason to respect him, because he would look down on all that. I mean, he hated <clears throat> anyway. He hated that kind of thing. You know, but and Jason, just, yeah. well, Jason said that he that his efforts helped to create cancel culture in the first place. Isn't that true, Jason, you're saying? Yeah, that was my the other point, because by, by participating in the creation of an icon around his work and by hiding his dark side, I mean, it's pretty hard to say how he couldn't have hit it. He couldn't have had a career as a, as a folk musician slash cultural saint if he'd been openly confessing his sins, but 
But anyway, that's that's oh. inseparable from the point that he he was complicit and he collaborated with the creation of an icon out of his own image, and that that I whole culture. Yeah, it eventually it ends up cancelling everything because it's fake. It's a counterfeit, so it has to cancel anything that, that threatens to impinge upon the illusion. Well, it's partly a question of where you pick him up. Like you both picked him up in the I, I in the 80s, whatever, the I, I'm your man time. And so he appeared at that. He had his act much more together then. He was, uh, you know, he was a, but initially... He was a mess, and he. I think his uh, the following that he attracted in the beginning was his. Well, his light and dark, you know, the light and dark side of him was very obvious from the and the dark side in, in particular. And like when he talked about you know slitting his wrists and so on, you know, uh, uh, you know that those songs on uh, songs of love and hate, and then the one and the songs from a room. The early songs are very raw. They're very bitter. They're very. Um, disturbing and he's he's clearly you know you would have in those days we would have said well he's insane we you know many people thought he was insane and he made a he made a career out of he could articulate insanity and, and that's why people you know well, liked him and later he became a kind of he turned himself into kind of a religious icon like you say you caught you caught him at that point that never for me, that it was too late. I was too old, and I wasn't going to follow that kind of thing. But you know, you you pick him up there, and I think maybe that's why you have him a little bit on a pedestal. And now you've got to knock him off. It's harder, you know. One one thought that I have about that is, you know, I did go from "I'm Your Man" to earlier albums, and um, the darkness that you talk about coming out in those, and the rawness that to me is not anything that would ever. I would ever consider th be, to be threatening to, um, I, I think of anything that makes him more engaging to an artistic yeah. personality, yeah. you know, I that like he does these things. Okay. We're not talking about criminal things, or at least not obviously, we're talking about the common um, difficulties that humans share. And, you know, and he's bringing that out. So I think when Jason talks about the dark stuff, he's talking about, the things that are not Leonard Cohen is not singing about or not. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, my niece likes Leonard Cohen and she knows about this stuff and she's read 16 Mounts of Hell. And I ask her, well, don't you feel ambivalent about listening to Leonard Cohen? And she says, well, it makes him more interesting. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's true. It does. But then my niece is very, very different from anyone who's participating in the council culture. She's my niece, right? So she's, she's fascinated by the dark side of the human psyche. And to her, like for me and for Anne and maybe for Kate, Leonard Cohen can be worse and, and we're not going to want to cancel them. I mean, I, I do sort of stop listening to his music, but not entirely. I sung one of his songs on a meeting just a couple of days ago. I can't. I'm not going to close the book completely because I know that it's just it's, that's too easy. Uh, you know, it doesn't doesn't actually work. Um, but right, anyway, yeah, Kate, Kate's point, yeah, being that, I mean, I think that, I mean, Anne, there's some stuff that Anne you've hinted at that Cohen is involved in, which is which is much worse than anything I've even uh, referred to in my 
stuff have come just partly because well mainly because there's no footnotes as Kate pointed out I've got no nothing to back it up but combined with that it's just so rank and foul the stuff that he may have been involved in the I mean that's that's like what I had to reveal about Alistair Crowley the one ends up with just a sense of absolute repulsion for this for this human being uh so I mean that that's what Kate's doing now I mean that dark side just go on I I'm gonna have to go and soon but this is very interesting no what I would just say that the more I studied the background of Leonard Cohen, the less I tended to judge him. Uh, he didn't stand out from the background as much as, you know, as much as he might for you, because I know what 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 he was part of, and there were much worse people. And he was very young. Well, much worse people. There were very bad people around him. There were people doing some of the worst things ever done in. I mean, I don't know, Canada, um, who, who were his teachers who have never been exposed, like, you know, the, the McGill University was really run, in my opinion, okay, by a death cult, and he joined that cult, but you see, when you first join a cult, you don't see what you, you don't think it's a death cult, you think, oh, I've got some good friends here, and they're nice to me, and they're lovely, and oh, I think the wife is attracted to me, and the husband, you know, is very whatever that was sort of the situation when you're 20 when you're you know you're not able you just you join things you do things when you're young you're you're born into a family you, you know and you figure it out as you go along and i i th i see that side of leonard now much more he explored a territory and it was a very it just happened to be pretty dark territory and thank you I, is how i feel about it now Glad he, I'm glad he did in a way. I mean, now we've got to live with it and, uh, you know, <laughs> we have responsibility of our own to figure out, you know, what comes next. Well, I just wonder, I mean, there's a last point. I mean, before Kate, we should have a last point too, but the, and the risk of repeating myself that the body of work that Cohen has left, including his life and more especially his life, like as with these other social cultural figures that I've looked at, it's it's incomplete unless unless certain aspects that have been concealed, including by Cohen himself, uh, are revealed. So that's where you come in, Anne. For example, I mean, you say nobody, well, not, not nobody, but the people that most impact don't want to hear that. So don't you feel that there's still, <laughs> I mean, you can be grateful in your own personal relationship to Cohen, but isn't there still like a film or a, uh, something to break through in order to free something and let air into something that otherwise is just frozen in, 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 in time? Well, that's where your work starts. You know, you, that's your, you know, we all start with something. We handed something with, it comes early. It can come early, it can come late in life. Uh, you know, for him, it came early. I think he was handed just a load of you know, work to do. And maybe for me now, I'm just waking up, you know, but um, anyway. Perhaps it has to do with hearing the songs, <clears throat> understanding them in a different context. Thinking of, um, I think Born in the USA became 
uh, a song that was sung um, to Bruce Springsteen, right? Born in the USA. So they, it's all about <clears throat> a lot of bad things about war and being an American, but they play it as kind of an anthem at, um, I think, Republican conventions, you know, and all all the people would get a dawn in the USA, you know, which, and they take it as a, or it would be delivered as an uplifting, pride-inducing thing, whereas it was sung to be something that was cr very critical. And so, you know, how are we, so Leonard Cohen has created this music and delivered it and, uh, how is it being heard as opposed to, you know, I, Jason, you had um, put, I think in, in your book, um, the last song on his final album, uh, listen to the, uh, listen to the hummingbird, right? Yeah. And that's just, that, that gives me chills listening to that song. If that, is indeed if this isn't just constructed interpretation of it if this is truly as as a message potentially as a message a um a uh confession of or at least a hint of okay what what appears to be happening here isn't really happening here this is me this is not me you know we'll listen to the hummingbird don't don't listen to me, right? And yeah, how should we be taking these songs? And I think delving deeper takes away the power of how perhaps they are intended to be presented, maybe just as all this pop music becomes the Marshall McLuhan thing, you know, it's just the medium and it becomes a mass hypnosis kind of uh, gives that effect, you know, the unifying effect, but there's still the artist behind the song and maybe there really is another something being delivered if you can crack through the NLP element of it, perhaps. Yeah, well, that's why we pay attention to artists is because they you know, constellations, you know, in some way they're the whole, they can start to represent way more than, you know, it's actually maybe in their art or even, but every, the whole environment, you know, and everything. We could go on for a long time. Worthwhile, so. <laughs> I've lost you, I think. <clears throat> Jason, you're still there, right? Yeah, have you lost the sound? Oh, you just became so silent and I saw no movement, so. <laughs> right. you're, just, you're just absorbing, absorbing what you've given to us. That's, uh, and I think that's why your work and Jason's work is, um, is enriching and expanding in that it gives, uh, it, it allows for that expanded context. Thank you for, you know, thanks. I, it, I really, but I hope someday to, you know, finish some things and grow up to the, you know, reach adulthood, you know, and finish things I started. So thank well, you. That's encouraging. 
Yeah, well, good luck um, reaching adulthood uh, in your 70s, Anne. It's better late than never. <laughs> <laughs> and we're all, we're all working on it. We're all, yeah. we're all our way along. It never ends. the end of this podcast next time Kate and I will be talking to James Howard Kunstler there is about four more Limerists to go and then that will be the game over for the Limerists so if you haven't already be sure to change ships or horses in the midstream to the end of the world and come over to landmademan.com register there and become a contributor if you want to get this special content on the